Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 10. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Heerman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travisherman.com slash rogues. Chapter 14 Lord Major General Terrell Woolstone was not looking forward to this meeting. The morning had already been chaos. The Grand General was missing, and Terrell could only presume he was dead after the slaughter they had uncovered in the Blood Tower. It had been horrific. He had not seen such death in a thankfully long time. House Harstorm had fallen into chaos. Its lord and its heir were most foully slain. House Wollstone, indeed all of Cuska, would fly into chaos as soon as it was revealed that the Grand General was missing. Black dread swirled in his gut at the struggle for power that would ensue. Javin was Janice's heir, but the boy would not be able to withstand it. Terrell breathed deep to control his emotions, focus his mind, his formidable intellect. So many pawns on the chalice board. Which way would each one move? How many moves ahead must he plan and able to mitigate the chaos that would soon follow? After what his investigators had discovered, they could well be going to war once again. Search parties scouring the underground for Janice's body, investigations into how Bella had been spirited away, piling on top of his usual duties at Tarnak Castle, all created a steady stream of traffic in and out of his office. He felt so heavy today. On his desk lay a stack of sealed communiques from the other great houses. They had begun arriving early this morning, after word began to spread of Lord Harstorm's death. Terrell did not want to consider what might be in them, not yet. Demands or thinly veiled threats couched in condolences and shallow lamentations, most likely. He had to focus his efforts on finding Janice, controlling the damage, or else... House Wollstone itself could be swallowed up in a sea of political fire. To make matters worse, the man he hated most in the world was coming to see him. He was quite certain that the feeling was mutual, but they were both soldiers. In politics and war, one could seldom pick one's bedfellows. Sometimes when Terrell ate, his jaw would pop painfully and remind him afresh of the day that had landed Rusk in prison and had left Terrell unable to eat solid food for two months. He realized abruptly that his fingers were rubbing his jaw just under his ear, and he stopped. His secretary, Lord Captain Phelan Wollstone, a portly but well-mannered man whose calling lay in administration, not battle, stepped into Terrell's office and cleared his throat. He's here, my lord. Terrell sighed and braced himself. Send him in. This was not going to be pleasant. 
Rusk shouldered into the office, and Terrell could only stare. Good Inanna's grace, Rusk! You almost look like a proper officer! Terrell had seen him wear nothing but peasant's garb and leather since the destruction of the first Black Fury Legion. Rusk grinned like a crocodile, but he did not salute. I thought you would approve. He did indeed look resplendent. His thick chest and arms filled the charcoal-black uniform, but it was perfectly tailored, with gleaming silver buttons up to his throat, conservative silver epaulettes, scarlet stripes down the legs, and gleaming black boots. Above his heart, embroidered in silver thread, was the fearsome Black Fury emblem. His sleeves bore the three scarlet stripes and three scarlet pips of his rank. His trimmed beard framed his black hair, pulled into a tight ponytail. He wore a well-used broadsword at his left side in a new polished scabbard, and a strange-looking pistol in a holster on his right hip. Terrell's gaze lingered on the pistol. The grip bent more sharply, and the firing mechanism did not look like a flintlock. There was no flint, no frizzen, and the hammer was a peculiar shape. Rusk could see his interest in the pistol, but Terrell would not give Rusk the satisfaction of asking about it. The silence hung heavy between them for long moments, but Terrell spoke first. Things have changed since yesterday. Rusk's face was dark and grim, but there a certain knowledge flickered too, a satisfaction that Terrell did not like. Indeed, Rusk said. I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Terrell grimaced. His Excellency is missing. Last night he went into the Blood Tower to observe the interrogation of four farthy women who might have had information about the kind of weapon that wounded Lord Javin. The four women were murdered, along with two punishers, Lord Challenharstorm and his eldest son. Of His Excellency there is no sign. We are searching the underground. Is there anything unusual about the killings? Unusual? Rusk's lips grew tighter. How were they killed? Terrell frowned. He did not like the expectance in Rusk's tone, as if he already knew something and just wanted Terrell to confirm. The men's throats were cut, and the women... The women had their heads and hands severed. Rusk nodded. Hathad, a special punishment, ancient, that for the far they use for the worst of the worst. Without their heads and hands, the dead cannot supplicate themselves and pray at the gates of heaven. Thus they cannot enter. It's a way to deny them the afterlife. Someone had a grudge against these women. Someone wanted to make a statement. Only the farthy would do such a thing. Rusk nodded. Aye. Unless someone is still trying to deceive us into thinking the farthy are responsible. Rusk shook his head. No. Hathad is used so seldom that none but a farthy would even think of it. Terrell teased his mustache. Rusk said, There were six mysterious deaths yesterday around the harbor, all of them laborers. Six. I had not heard of this. Aye, because your harbor constabulary was too busy chasing ghosts to inquire about the rush of unexpected deaths. One was knifed in an alley. One died in his bed with no wounds. Apparently, one drank himself to death, one was apparently killed by a jealous husband, and the last two apparently strangled each other to death. Strangled each other to death? How is that possible? 
Aye, you have the gist of it. The harbor is a rough district, but there hasn't been such an overnight abundance of deaths down there in years. And they all strangely occurred last night? No. Every one of those deaths stinks like a harbor whore's crotch. Look under the surface, there's something bigger. Those men were silenced. And there was a ship. Aye, there was a ship. Gullwing. A Duthan. Aye. I know the captain, a man named Jum Odenth. Did you hear of this ship through a dock worker named Charl? Terrell rifled through the neat stack of documents on his desk. Yes, the constables questioned a dock worker named Charl, who said he saw a gullwing depart two nights ago at low tide, under oars. Charl's dead. He was number three. Heat rose in Terrell's face. How do you know these things? Rusk's eyes pointed straight forward. Lord Major General, I have more spies in this city than you. In any case, I have met Jum Odenth, captain of Gullwing. There was never a man more in love with suns and moons. He keeps an expensive mistress in Lochmana. A man needs coin for that. Terrell fixed his gaze directly on Rusk's face. A mercenary like that could be bought by anyone. He detected a minute shift in Rusk's stance, a minute hardening of his muscles. The barb had struck home. I also know that before His Excellency disappeared, he ordered the mobilization of almost 300,000 troops. Terrell rose half out of his seat. How did you... So if I know this, you must consider the likelihood that every farthy spy in Norgard knows as well. Terrell sank back into his chair. Major army deployments are difficult to keep a secret, I suppose. There are five armies mustering outside the city as we speak. They look like they don't know whether to march or to squat and shit. Any trained observer, and spies are trained, can see they've been mustered but not committed. Our forces are milling around in the dark like blind box to slaughter. Terrell kept his voice admirably even. And what do you suggest we do? I don't suggest that you and the regular forces change a damn thing. Gather the troops, march to Tarn's Rift and Ramon Pass, blockade the harbor and picket Inanon's belly, polish the cannons and give the bastards a show of force. If all of this is a prelude to more war, then the far they need to see that we can still blacken their eyes even after they've kicked us in the wedding jewels. And if the far they are not, in fact, responsible for all of this, then you will know in damn short order. Beyond that, pay me my twenty thousand sons that His Excellency agreed to, and we'll be on our way to bring Bella Wollstone home today. I'm afraid that is out of the question. Rusk blinked once, and his voice dropped low and deadly, held like a knife just out of sight. What do you mean? As Janice said, such a sum is a year's pay for an entire regiment. If we're going to war, the Treasury cannot afford such an expenditure now. Rusk almost sneered. Of course, it's much easier for you to say that, with His Excellency missing. Terrell clenched his fingers into a steeple, and he savored the old pain in his jaw. Yesterday afternoon, Janice reconsidered. He saw reason. Twenty thousand was far too great a sum. Tarl, I'll not debate this with you. He leaned forward ever so slightly. And I never negotiate.
Then you'll have to find a better way to pay for your lovely new uniforms. Warm satisfaction spread through Terrell's breast. By Helian it felt good. For all Rusk's striking attire and good behavior, at least up until this moment, he was still nothing more than a criminal, and Terrell would be flayed and flensed a thousand times before he gave Rusk a single iron mark. The muscles of Rusk's jaw rippled under his dark beard. Terrell continued, Now, you can go back to your mountain and play with your new pistol. I have much to do. Rusk stood as rigid as a plank, and his seething eyes looked off through the window behind Terrell. Very well, Tuttle, but remember this much. Someone knows every move you make before you make it. Someone knew about the Farthy women. They knew where they would be. They knew about the dock workers, and they knew how to kill them with so that the deaths went unnoticed for just long enough. Perhaps there was even some witness yesterday to the agreement you just broke. For your sake, Janus had better be dead because if he learns that you were responsible for calling off the only hope of his daughter's rescue, well, we'll see how far the mighty can fall. Terrell jumped to his feet. Commander Rusk, you will either die on the gallows or of syphilis. That depends on whether I embrace your morals or your wife. Farewell, Tuttle, you slack-jawed nutsucker. Rusk spun on his heel and departed. Hot rage boiled up in Terrell's breast, but he suppressed it and released a slow, quavering breath. A tingle whispered through his body. Now he could deal with the business at hand as it should be done. Terrell leaned back in his chair. Carl Macklin sat in the shade of the waterfront tea shop. It was a rare occasion for him to indulge in one of his family's most prestigious products. House Macklin was proud of its tea, and the misty mountains of northern Cusco were home to the most prized tea fields in the world. These days, however, he missed little else about life in the great houses. The tea shop was situated on a steep hillside, with the busy thoroughfare in front and a commanding view of the harbor and its environs from the rear veranda. For this reason, he and Rusk frequented this place. It was an almost ideal vantage point. The view was too pungent with harbor smells for more effete nobles, but it was as attractive as it was useful, with the crystal blue harbor and the forest of ship's masts. He had been sitting here since he arrived in the city about noon. From his vantage point, he could see the livery of three great houses scurrying about below like beheaded chickens flopping about, searching for ghosts that were long gone. He even spotted some blue dragons. The look on Javin Wollstone's face this morning as Carl had run past with the lads during daily training told him that the boy had some grit. It had been the look of a desperately weary man, with no conception of the physical rigors that yet awaited him, the lengths to which a man's body could be pushed but nevertheless was pushing those limits in himself. Javin Wollstone had something to prove. Maggot had not possessed that look when he returned with the sash. He looked tired, certainly, but not the heart-wrenching weariness that came with hardening one's body into black fury steel, especially that first run up Black Snow Mountain. Carl knew Maggot had stolen the sash, most probably from ambush, and Rusk knew it as well. But these tests were not just about endurance or strength. The sash test was just one among many that Rusk employed. 
They taught and measured unconventional thinking, teamwork, improvisation, the ability to face adversity and overcome it by any means necessary. Javin Wollstone had played by what he imagined to be the rules, and he had lost. But perhaps he did have the capacity to learn from his mistakes. The young man was tough. Carl had to give him that, squirming a bit at the tenderness of his own crotch. Carl had been carefully measuring him up, and a bit of fisticuff could prove a great way to test a man's mettle. He could imagine the young man's devastation when Rusk told him that he had failed. Maggot would be trained as a black fury, at least until the rigors of the training drove him out. Carl did not expect Maggot to wear the black fury tattoo, ever. Even those accepted for training seldom finished. It was too hard for all but the hardest men. Rusk had shown Carl, once upon a time, how far a man's body could be pushed. Carl sipped the light green tea, savoring the earthy richness on his palate. Macklin Green was the best, without question. A serving girl came to him and curtsied politely. Sir, he's here. He thanked her, finished his tea, and stood up. Rusk was well known in these parts. The shops that Rusk chose to patronize were fiercely loyal to him for his generosity and respect. He was a brutal, ruthless fighter, with a coarse, unyielding disposition. But he could cultivate relationships with the right people, with all the charm and aplomb of a seasoned politician. The common people respected him. He was one of them. He knew how to speak to them. As a result, he had a network of spies and contacts throughout Cusca that would turn Terrell Wollstone green with envy. Indeed, he spent a tremendous amount of time cultivating those relationships, readying himself for anything when the time came to act. Thanks to the Black Fury's history of success, he had gold enough to favor both their pallets and their privates. Rusk waited outside beside a bock-drawn wagon. Carl looked up and down the street, past the man in the stunning new uniform. I'm looking for Commander Rusk. Have you seen him? Oh, apologies, boss. I didn't recognize you in that uniform. Rusk flashed a white grin. One must always be prepared to dress for the proper occasion. The right clothes for the right mission. It was time for us to appear like a proper command. We don't need them where we're going, but I have uniforms for everyone, including you. Carl noticed a heavy tarpaulin tied over the contents of the wagon, covering what looked like crates. Rusk caught his glance, and his grin widened with dark glee. We have everything we need. We're moving out tonight. Carl stepped closer and peeked under the tarpaulin, careful to let no passers-by see underneath. He spotted the corner of a locked steel strongbox packed in with three more just like it. He looked quizzically at Rusk and pointed. Traveling funds, Carl. As I said, we have everything we need. I'm surprised the Lord Major General paid you. He didn't. He reneged on the Grand General's agreement. As I expected when I heard that His Excellency had gone missing. So what did you do? Is this all of it? Rusk patted the tarpaulin with smug affection. It is indeed. You know me, Carl. I always have a backup plan. Fortunately, His Excellency saw fit to provide me with a letter of order. He patted his jacket and paper crinkled inside. I took this letter, stamped with Janice Wollstone's personal seal, or a close copy thereto, 
marched into the Lord High Treasurer's office and presented him with this very official-looking letter. And it only took a little further persuasion for him to load up a wagon for me, whereupon I took the gold and marched right fucking out of there. Carl rolled his eyes. We're going to prison. I've been in prison, and it's not so bad. Prison would be a seaside stroll compared to where we're going. Carl shot him a serious look. I'll explain on the way. Even Terra Wollstone will have a hard time throwing us in prison when we bring little Bella Wollstone back home. So our choices are to bring Bella Wollstone back or go to prison. Do not forget not coming back at all. How could I? That just makes it more fun. Carl grimaced. I enjoy living under the constant threat of death and dismemberment. Rusk laughed and clapped him on the shoulder. That's the spirit! Then he looked around for eavesdroppers and lowered his voice. Now, send word back to the lads. They're to meet us in Yarburg in a week's time. You and I will hire a ship to take us up the coast. They'll travel overland as a merchant caravan. From this moment, our mission is hot, and Tarnak Castle has more leaks than a burlap basket. Carl nodded. He well understood what that meant. Secrecy and impending violence. The Black Furies were going to disappear from the world, and whenever and wherever they reappeared, they would wreak their namesake upon the living. I'll send word, boss. The equipment and supplies are ready. Ost has the manifest. Good. Now I need to get out of this fucking uniform. Carl tucked in the tarpaulin to conceal the strong boxes full of gold. Well, don't change your clothes out here in the street. The sight of your balls in broad daylight will destroy the city's morale and likely cause a panic. Rusk threw back his head and laughed. True. Chapter 15 In spite of the sour anger roiling in his gut, Javin's stomach was roaring. Tonin sat across from him, with a similar plate, heaping with warm bread, juicy roast box, spring vegetables, and preserved apples. Delicious, but Javin hardly tasted anything as he wolfed it down and gulped at the tankard of bitter ale beside him. He attacked the food like a starving jackal, grinding his knife and fork into the worn wooden plate. The great hall of the rook's nest was empty except for them and the kitchen steward. Four long tables with narrow benches filled the room and birds flitted back and forth among the lofty rafters. Tonin ate his meal more calmly, chewing every bite as if the food were thoughts themselves. When Javin had nearly finished his plate, Tonin said, There's something I don't understand. Javin's teeth ground to a halt on the roast meat in his mouth. What is it? Why are you so angry? What do you mean? You don't want to be here. You did not choose to join the Black Furies. So why are you so angry? Why not just go home? You can tell him that you tried, and you don't have to go any farther. Javin swallowed the meat like a lump of hot lead. Tonin continued, You can pursue other means to save your sister. I have no command. I'm sure you'll be given another... Javin had nothing to go back to except shame. He slammed his utensils down. Why do you care? That's another good question. Tonin scratched his head. 
perhaps because I don't like to see someone lose because of a technicality, or by treachery. There's no way he could have taken that sash himself, that low-born box-sucker. She almost killed me. She? That exquisite female shape flashed in Javin's mind again. Emerald eyes and copper hair, delicate breasts and lithe buttocks, and a flashing dagger. Never mind. Your failure, then, is one of perspective. You were strong enough to make the journey, which was arduous. You are clever and quick enough to gain the sash from her, whoever she is. You simply imagine the rules of the test to be different from actuality. Javin's eyes narrowed as he looked at Tonin. You sound like an educated scholar, not a commoner. My mother was an educated woman. I thought your mother was farthy. My mother is farthy. I thought farthy women were uneducated slaves, docile, ignorant breeding stock hidden away in their homes. Well, yes. That is an oversimplification. I have never been to Fartha, but my mother has told me many things. In some cities, the strictures on women are less severe. They can be educated, own property, divorce a bad husband, or at least they could in the past. That's why she left. She taught ancient languages at the university in Almithra, one of Fartha's great centers of learning. But a new religious sect sprung up in Almithra, one that taught the strict literal adherence to ancient religious law, which forbade unmarried women from having contact with men. His previously calm voice turned bitter and hard. One day, on her way to teach, she was beaten and raped by a gang of acolytes. They called her harlot and seductress because she walked free and unaccompanied in public. After that, she was so frightened that she could not leave her parents' house. This religious sect began to take control of the city. Their people filled its public offices and preached in all the temples, until even the most reasonable priests were driven out as well. That was when she fled Almithra. So how did she end up here? She traveled to the free cities, and she never speaks of this, but I was born in the free city of Duth. I don't remember much of this time, except that we were always hungry always hungry. Now she bakes bread in a small mountain village six days travel north of here and dreams of books. But you're here. The people there hate Farthy. Then why does she stay? It's a beautiful village. She is a beautiful, charming woman. She won them over. And why are you here? They hate Farthy half-breeds even more, and I am not charming. Javin fixed him with a long stare, and Tonin met his gaze. A wave of weariness washed over him. By all the gods he was exhausted. His skull still pounded, and his slashed shoulder was like an aching melancholy. You seem to have placed much stock in becoming a fury. What are you going to do now? Javin asked. Tonin sighed and nodded. Perhaps my dreams will show me my path. Javin rubbed his eyes, which now ached with want of sleep. Perhaps he should accept Rusk's offer for a few hours' rest. Bella's musical giggle echoed like a ghost in his mind. No. He got up and walked toward the door of the great hall, tugging on his jacket. Where are you going? Tonin called. Javin glanced back. Back to Norgard. This isn't over. My sister is still missing, and I may no longer have a command, but Rusk can take his tests, shove them up his arse, and light them on fire. Tonin chuckled. I wish you good luck, Javin Wollstone. Javin gave him a curt nod and headed for the stable. He hoped that Saltstone was no longer missing.
Javin stood unsteadily before the Lord Major General and saluted. Merciful Inanan, young man, Lord Terrell exclaimed. You look terrible. Javin would not have chosen terrible to describe how he felt. His clothes were plastered to his body with sweat and rain, having passed through a brief but soaking spring shower about an hour gone, and his hair felt like a mud cake stuck to his head. His hands ached from gripping the reins, and his legs felt like bread dough. Blisters covered the bottoms of his feet like gravel in his boots. Lord Terrell, I must speak with the Grand General immediately. Where is he? Terrell looked away, his narrow brow creasing into a frown. He looked weary at heart. Sit down, Javin, you must know something, but it's something that we must keep secret for as long as possible. Javin looked at the chair beside him. If he sat down, he might not be able to get up again. I prefer to stand if it pleases you, sir. It was a long ride. As you wish. Terrell steepled his fingers before his chin. Much has happened since your departure yesterday. I saw the armies gathering outside the city. Perhaps a unit needed an officer. He didn't relish the idea of returning to battle, but the thought of his command forever stripped was too much to consider. Javin, your father is missing. He might well be dead. Javin tried to make his collapse into the chair look as if he had intended to sit down. Lord Terrell told him the events of the previous day and night. Search parties had been scouring the underground since the night before, but they had found nothing. When Terrell finished his narrative, he said, So you understand why we don't want word of this to get out? Not until we're ready. Javin nodded. Chaos, revolt. He imagined the great houses at each other's throats, scrabbling to claim the title of Grand General for themselves. Bella, rotting in some farthy chieftain's tent, or lying in a ditch somewhere with her throat slit. Fartha, prowling at the gates like a ravenous jackal. Terrell leaned forward on the desk. In the meantime, I am doing my best to direct the search for Bella, hunt down her abductors, and find your father. Javin breathed deeply and swallowed hard. Something in Lord Terrell's voice pricked Javin's mind. Javin locked his gaze squarely into his elder cousin's. Do you intend to call a promotion council? Terrell stiffened almost imperceptibly and leaned back. I think that is a bit premature, but not premature enough to have not considered it. After all, Lord Terrell continued, we are sure of nothing right now. Perhaps in the future something will have to be done to prevent the collapse of our house, but who is going to move for your promotion? Terrell's eyes flashed. I do not like your tone, young man. Remember to whom you are speaking. Javin met his gaze. You did not answer my question. Nor am I inclined to answer. So you do have a high lord willing to support you in trying to seize my father's place? Who is it? One of the Harstorms? Terrell stood up and leaned forward on the desk, his thin jaw hard and outthrust. I'll tolerate no more of your insubordination, Captain. But I'll forgive your words up to this point because you are my cousin and Janice Wollstone's only son. Go, get some rest, clean yourself up. You hardly appear a proper officer at all. Perhaps later you can join the search for your father, but for now you're no good to anyone. You are dismissed. Javin stood up and fixed his gaze upon the wall. Lord Major General, permission to speak. Terrell's shoulders tensed. He nodded slowly.
I have undergone more since yesterday's sunrise than I ever imagined possible until now, but that does not make me blind, deaf, or dumb. You'll not bury Janice Wollstone before he's dead. I will see to that. Terrell stood tall and looked down his long nose at Javin. You've some of your mother in you, I see. Not much, I fear. If she were here right now, she'd fight you tooth and nail to secure the promotion herself, and it's possible you'd not survive it. If I had more of my mother in me, you and I would duel on the Castle Green the moment you called the promotion council. Terrell looked away, his lips downturned. Javin's heart pounded in his chest and blood surged fresh energy into his weary shoulders. He smiled inwardly at how accurately he had read Terrell's ambitions. Javin kept his voice carefully even. For the good of House Wollstone, for Bella, and for Cuska, curb your ambitions, Lord Major General, until the dead are buried. You are dismissed, Lord Captain. Javin snapped a salute, spun on his heel, and left Lord Terrell's office. Not long afterward, unsure of how he got there, Javin found himself in the garden on this warm afternoon, with fresh sun breaking through spring rain clouds and slanting columns of gold laying upon the surface of the outlying harbor, dark gray clouds gilded with silver and shot with patches of azure, and himself walking down the fragrant path of the wisteria tunnel away from watchful eyes into the verdant depths of foliage and seclusion. The sunlight dappled the earthen path, and the cool moist air, laden with the scent of cascading wisteria blooms, felt like a mother's cool caress on his cheeks. With a soul-deep sigh, he sank down onto a lone stone bench, and for just a few weary moments he let despair take him. The tears came, tears for his sister, for his father, and for his country. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Heerman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the Donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.